right, so we're in Psalm 137. Uh, we use the ESV translation here. If you need a Bible, I think we do have spare Bibles, so step your hand. I think the chief steward will, will find you a Bible. Arby, yep, so if you need a Bible, put up your hand. Psalm 137. All right, this is the word of the Lord. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for not leaving us in the dark, that you've spoken to us in your word. And we thank you for this part of your word, but we pray now that you would, through your spirit, help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. Amen. Well, one of the great things about the book of Psalms is that they so often resonate with us, right? They give us words to say in our prayers. They meet us in the time that we're at, whether it's a praise psalm that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks uh, in, in Psalm 111 when it, when it says, praise the Lord, I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And we can say, yes, you know, amen, I, I give thanks to you, Lord. Uh, or even the, the lament psalms, we're going to look at a lament psalm next week, um, Psalm 88. And they give us words to say in our suffering. They give us words to pray to God with, uh, to say, help me, Lord to say, be with me, Lord, save me, Lord. But what about psalms like this one that we just read? Psalm 137. Is this a song we can sing? Is this a song we can pray back to God? I mean, it seems pretty difficult, doesn't it? Especially those last few verses. I mean, what do we do with that? How do we sing that? How do we pray that? But even in the rest of the psalm, there's, there's a lot of talk about Zion and Jerusalem and Babylon, and it can all seem very remote from our situation. What does this have to do with me and my Christian life? It seems thousands of kilometers away, thousands of years ago it was written, what does this have to do with us? And what I want us to see right from the start this morning is that we're actually a lot closer to the situation of this psalmist than we might first think. In some ways, we're actually very close to this situation. See, the context of this psalm is the Israelite exile in Babylon. Right? In verse 1, by the waters 
of Babylon, we sat and wept. So it's the, it's the 6th century BC, and God's people are living in enemy territory. Uh, Jerusalem, the, their capital city, the great city of God where the temple was, where their king reigned from, was invaded and destroyed and burned to the ground by the Babylonian army. And some of the Israelites would have been killed in this invasion. Some fled to Egypt and other places. But most of the Israelites have been taken away to live in Babylon. And they find themselves living in a pagan city as a small minority group uh, in a culture that doesn't care at all about their God or their way of living. And what we get in this psalm is an insight into the heart and the mind of one of these exiles, one of Israel's worship leaders that's been taken off into Babylon. And what we get is an insight into his heart. He's trying to live as a faithful believer in God, in a culture that has rejected God, that doesn't care about God. And, and that's someone we can learn from, isn't it? Someone who is trying to live faithfully for God in a world that doesn't. And that's precisely the situation we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus. And, and the Bible itself actually makes this connection between the exile in Babylon and our Christian lives as well. In the New Testament, in, in the letter of 1 Peter, Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles in the world. And actually the language of Babylon is used in the New Testament, in, in Peter and in Revelation, to talk about, not the city, which is long gone by now, but this world. This world is called Babylon. We're living in Babylon. And then in the book of Revelation, when, when John speaks of the new creation, when Jesus comes back, the, the world that he's going to remake and get rid of all the sin and suffering and death, and we're going to live with God, he calls that place Jerusalem. He calls it the new Jerusalem. See, they're making this connection between the exile in Babylon. They see they read, they digest that story in the Old Testament, and they say that is actually an image, a picture of what it's like to live as a follower of Jesus. That's my old page, that's right. And so this psalm can be a great help to us, I think, this morning. It gives us a glimpse into what it looks like to be a faithful exile in this world, to be a Christian in this world. So if you want a, a title for the sermon today, Living as Exiles, Living as Exiles. And I think there are three aspects to life as an exile that we see uh, in this psalm. The first we see in the first four verses, and it's what I've called a godly grief, a godly grief. So let's have a look at verses one and two again to start with. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. That is our, apparently, our harps, our musical instruments. So he starts by giving us a little snapshot, a little story of his time in exile. There are a lot of other psalms in parts of the Bible that talk about why Israel went into exile and how long they'll be there. Uh, but this is a really unique insight into a particular moment in exile, this scene by the river in Babylon. And in some ways, it's actually a pretty idyllic setting 
If you picture it in your mind, you've got this group of friends sitting under the shade of a tree by the river of Babylon, and in one of the most beautiful and prosperous cities in the ancient world. Uh, it's the kind of thing you'd see on a postcard, I guess the ancient version of, of sitting by Sydney Harbour in a group of friends. Except when you zoom in on this scene, you see that they are crying. They're a a group of musicians and singers, but they aren't playing or singing. They've hung up their instruments on branches. Now, why? Why are they crying? Well, we're told it's when they remembered Zion. Zion's the mountain that the city of Jerusalem was built on. It's just another way of talking about that city, about Jerusalem. And it's this memory of their homeland, of their home city, that brings them to tears. And my first thought was, well, maybe they're feeling homesick. You know, they've been away from their home for years, maybe decades by now, and they miss being at home. Perhaps you've felt this way as well in a foreign city, a foreign country. Perhaps Australia is the foreign city or the foreign country for you. We can feel homesick. But I don't actually think that's what's happening here. It's not just homesickness. See, what they're reminded of is what happened to their home. They're reminded of their defeat and their destruction of Jerusalem by their enemies, by the Babylonian army. So he goes on, verses 3 and 4. For there, by the river, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, that is, songs of joy, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. See, their tears, their their refusal to sing is in response to this mocking by the Babylonian soldiers who are there with them at the river. They say, go on, sing us one of those songs about how great Zion is. You know, that city that we destroyed, that we burned to the ground. Sing us one of those songs, guys. And of course, they refuse this mocking quest. Because in mocking Jerusalem, they are mocking God. In mocking Jerusalem, they're mocking God himself. See, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's where God chose to reign and rule from. It stands for God and his kingdom. It's Jerusalem. And so they hang up their instruments. They just sit and they weep. And it's the right response, I think. It's a godly grief. And that's, that's the first thing I think we can learn from this psalm about living in exile. It involves a godly grief. See, the Christian response to pain and suffering and evil in the world is not stoicism. It's not pretending that there's nothing wrong with the world and just grit your teeth and bear it and get through and pretend that everything's okay. There is a time for tears. And Jesus has promised us that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that great memory verse that we looked at last year from Revelation 21. He's talking about life in the new Jerusalem. No more tears. But we're not there yet. We're still in exile in Babylon, and so it's right that we grieve. Don't feel guilty for finding life hard, 
Are those times where everything's just going wrong and you just feel like you're crumbling under the weight of it all? Or when tragedy strikes unexpectedly? Or if you're battling anxiety or depression just day after day? Life in exile will mean times of sitting and weeping. That's what life in Babylon is like sometimes. And there's a challenge for us here too, I think, in these verses, or at least for me. Because what, it seem, what seems to have caused their grief, even more than the brokenness of the world, is the godlessness that they experience. Right? It was the fact, more than anything else, that God and His city were being mocked. That's what brought them to tears most of all. It was the godlessness, even more than the brokenness, that brought them to tears. Now, I naturally grieve the brokenness of the world, the the suffering, the pain, the death, and we should. But what I don't do as naturally is grieve the godlessness of the world. See, does the way that God is treated in our society bother us? The way that Jesus, who in reality is the reigning king and ruler of the world, he's just treated as a good teacher who can be set aside, who can be ignored if we want to. Or the way that some sins are not just tolerated in our society, but celebrated in our society. Would any of these things ever bring us to tears? We're just kind of used to them, are we? Well, this is the way that things are. And too often, it's my reputation, my name, my honour that I care about the most. Not God's name, God's reputation, God's honour. It's when I'm made fun of and when I'm overlooked that hurts, not when God is made fun of and when God is overlooked. This group of Israelites in Babylon, they hold God and His kingdom in such high esteem in their minds that the godlessness of the world around them brings them to tears. It causes them to grieve. So that's the first thing I think we can learn about from this psalm about living in exile. There's an appropriate godly grief over the brokenness and the godlessness of our world. But then the psalmist goes on from describing this scene by the river to describing his own mindset. And he makes what I've called a commitment to joy. A commitment to joy. So verses 1 to 4, a godly grief, but then verses 5 and 6, a commitment to joy. And he gives this uh, slightly strange pledge of allegiance to Jerusalem, at least strange in my mind. Verse 5, he says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That is... Presumably his skills with the lyre, his his musical ability. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. That is so I can't sing anymore. He says, I will never sing again if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, if you're anything like me and have basically zero music skills at all, uh, then this doesn't really have a lot of power behind it, this kind of a pledge, you know? Like, it's 
probably be a blessing to those around me if, if my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth sometimes. Uh, but remember, this is the worship leader of Israel. Right? This is their Mick or, or Henry. Right? <laughs> Playing music and singing is this guy's life, even more than these guys. Right? Musicians in Israel, they were full-time musicians. Their wage was paid by the rest of the people. Every day they played their instruments and sang for God at the temple. And he, and he says, if I ever forget Jerusalem, if I ever forget God and his kingdom, then my gifts, my abilities are useless. And if I'm going to use my voice and my musical ability at all, it's going to be in service of God and his kingdom, not in response to this mockery. See, it's a statement of absolute loyalty to God. It's like a, a footballer, a professional footballer saying, if I don't play for this club, then I'm never going to play again. Or, or imagine someone at your workplace saying, if, if I don't work for this company, then I will never work a day in the rest of my life. Right? That's probably pretty hard to imagine, isn't it? But that is the kind of radical commitment and loyalty that is being described here. He's saying, I don't care how much opposition there is. Right? I don't care how much it looks like God has lost. I don't care how godless this society is that I find myself in. I don't care how many other people forget you, Lord. I will not forget. I will pledge my allegiance to you. See, there were some Israelites who went into exile and did forget God. They completely assimilated, they compromised, they, they went into the lifestyle of, of the Babylonians, but not this faithful exile. So he's been brought to tears by his world, but not to despair. He, he stays firm in his faith. And notice what he says it means to remember Jerusalem. He says, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. See, to remember Jerusalem is to make Jerusalem his highest joy. It's not just setting his mind on Jerusalem, it's about his emotions, his affections as well. It's about what he enjoys so he's not just a faithful exile because he, he feels like he has to. He, he wants to be. He, he so values God and his kingdom. that they're, they're more valuable to him than anything else, than, than all the pleasures of life in Babylon that he could enjoy, than, than fame and popularity, than even than his musical ability. God and his kingdom are the most valuable thing to him. So this commitment to Jerusalem in, in verses 5 and 6, this pledge that our, our brother makes in exile, it's at the deepest level a commitment to joy, a decision to be joyful. And it's, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? How do you commit to something uh, that you feel? How do you commit to something like joy? It's not, not something you can just manufacture and de decide to have. But that doesn't mean we have no control of over our emotions either. It doesn't mean we have no control over our joy in God either. See, there are things we can do, aren't there, to promote 
our joy, to encourage our joy. It's a bit like getting a fire going. I don't know if you've ever tried to get a fire going, like a, a bonfire or even uh, in your house in the, in the fireplace. Uh, you'll know that you don't have total control over how much it gets going, all right? As much as you would like to, um, there's sometimes where it just doesn't work from one reason or the other. But that's not to say there's nothing you can do to get a fire going, right? You can add logs to the fire. You can protect the fire from wind. You can do things that generally help, even if it's not a guarantee. I think a commitment to joy is a bit like that. It's a commitment to adding logs to the fire, to putting things in your life that help produce joy in God and in his kingdom. It's what Riley was talking about last week, to tune out of the things of this world and to tune in to God, to build these uh, structures in your life, build habits into your life that promote your joy in God, whether that's your, your daily devotion time that you want to set aside, whether it's music that you put on around the house, Christian music during the day, or an audio Bible or something like that, or your time as a family doing family worship. Or even committing to being at at life group this year. Make that commitment to growth group this year. Commit to adding these logs onto the fire of your soul to fuel your affections for God. See, we need to be reminded every day, every hour probably, of how good God is and how blessed we are to be His people, how how the, our sins from this week, even this morning, have been paid for, have been nailed to the cross of Jesus. How God will not count them against us anymore. How we're part of his family. How the creator of the universe has made us part of his family, never to let us go. And that we have a new creation to look forward to, this new Jerusalem, our true home. See, we need constant reminders of these truths, not just once a week, every day, every hour, every minute. These are logs on the fire that fuel our joy in God and in his kingdom. So, a godly grief, a commitment to joy, and then the last few verses we see a cry for justice. A cry for justice. See, for the first time in this psalm, our, our psalmist calls out to God himself. Remember, O Lord. This, this word remember comes up again. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not that he's worried that God's literally forgotten something, that something slipped his mind, he's got to remind God of something. You know, he's calling on God to act on his promises. He's saying, God, you've said you would do this thing. You've said you would execute justice. Now do it, Please. Come through on your promise. So verse 7, he says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. The, the day of Jerusalem, is talking about the day that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian army. And, it, and the Edomites, it seems, were egging them on. Lay it bare, lay it bare to the ground. See, the Edomites were one of uh, Israel's closest neighbours, and they're actually related to the Israelites as well. They came through the line of Abraham as well, but through Esau, not through Jacob. They were sort of 
cousins, I suppose, to the Israelites and close neighbours. But instead of defending their neighbour when the Babylonians came marching in, they turned on them. They betrayed them. And so this psalmist cries out for justice to be done. And then he moves on to Babylon itself. A daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now, it's a shocking statement, isn't it? One that just feels over the top. It feels vindictive. It feels malicious. So how are we, how are we supposed to think about this? How can this apply to us today? Well, there are two quick things to notice here. Uh, and I think they'll help us to understand and apply this verse. Uh, Firstly, the key to understanding verse 9 is verse 8. The key to understanding verse 9 is verse 8. He says, Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. See, that's the general principle of justice that God has given his people in the Old Testament for their civil government. Right? An eye for an eye. A punishment fits the crime. It's not this uh, escalating retaliation that gets worse and worse and worse. No, it's actions get what they deserve. The punishment fits the crime. So he says, what may, that, may what they have done to us be done to them. And what have they done? Well, he gives a specific example in verse 9. So this is one thing that the Babylonians inflicted on Israel that caused our psalmist to cry out for justice. It's as if our psalmist is kind of holding up a mirror to what the Babylonians have done for for his people to remember and for us to tell us, show us, give us an insight into the horror that they experienced at the hands of the Babylonians. See, the, the Babylonians weren't really into a peaceful transfer of power right? We get an insight here into the horror that God's people experienced, that our psalmist here experienced, right? The Babylonians coming in and killing women and children, maybe even his own children. And he cries out to God for justice, for justice to be done. And that brings us to the second thing to notice here, and it's that our psalmist brings his anger, and there is anger here, no doubt, there's anger, but he brings his anger and his desire for justice to God. He brings it to God. Remember, O Lord, he says. He doesn't take matters into his own hands, but he leaves them in the hands of God. And this, I think, is the key to to understanding these parts of the Psalms. And if you've read through the Psalms in in your daily devotion or something, you'll know these are all through the Psalms, these calls for God to judge their enemies. I think this is a really key thing to understand. See, what these statements show us is that it's good and right to be angry at injustice. It's good and right to be angry about injustice. But what do we do with that anger? We take it to God, the righteous judge. 
have a look what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. And this is the key principle, I think. Repay no one evil for evil, Paul says, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Which probably means it, they feel the shame of their evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or as he says in Ephesians, really simply, be angry and yet do not sin. Did you know the Bible commands you to be angry? <laughs> right? Be angry at injustice, at sin and evil in our world. But don't sin. Don't take justice into your own hands. Take it to God. Entrust it to Him. And He will execute justice. In, in this life, to some extent, through the government authorities, through the civil authorities who... Paul goes on to say, are his servants for doing justice. So, to some extent in this life, but fully and finally on that last day, on Judgment Day. And so, it's because he will judge fully and finally on that last day that we don't need to take up our weapons and fight. Right? It, might, it might seem a bit strange, but the key to living a life of Forgiveness and peace is the fact that God is a God of justice and judgment and wrath. It's because He will judge that we can choose to love and forgive those around us, even our enemies. See, even in exile, God, God's people were called to be people of peace. Like God said this to His people living in Babylon. He said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, how could they do this? How could they possibly do this, knowing what the Babylonians had done to them? How they had destroyed their city, killed their children, mocked their God, well, it's because they knew that their God was a God of justice. Right? He's got this. He's sovereign. He has promised to execute justice one day, finally and for all. And again, the Bible doesn't ask us to deny reality, right? that, to pretend that evil isn't really evil or to minimize it somehow. No, be angry at injustice, but do not sin. Take it to God. So, three aspects of living faithfully in exile. A, a godly grief over the state of the world. A commitment to joy in God and His kingdom. And a crying out to God for justice. It can seem like a bit of a mixed bag, kind of grief, joy, anger. But I think that's part of the point, <laughs> that life in exile is messy, 
Life here in this world is messy. That's the reality of it. Because we're not home yet. We're not home yet. I think we all need this reminder this morning, whether we're struggling our way through Babylon or whether we're thriving here in Babylon. Right? If, if you're struggling at the moment, if you feel like one of these Israelites on the rivers of Babylon and just sitting and weeping, then remember, this is not your true home. This is not our true home. Christ will return one day and wipe away every tear. No more mourning or crying or sadness or pain. So stick in there. Hold on to your faith like our faithful exile. Commit to God and His kingdom. Even even through tears, commit to Him. And if you're not struggling, if, if life's going well, if you're just enjoying God's good gifts, and that's a good thing, still remember, this is not your home. This is not our home. Even the best things this world have, has to offer are just a taste of what is to come. Don't mistake this world as it is now for your true home. I'm going to sing a song now about this great hope that we have. And I love this song. It's a song that uh, shows us that our hope impacts our present. Our hope is an anchor for the soul, as the writer for the Hebrews says. The, the promise of our future home gives us that security and stability as we live our lives here. But let's pray and then we'll, and then we'll sing. Our Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us this great hope of life in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem. For we pray now that you would be with us in our journey there. Give us a godly grief and a godly kind of anger at injustice in this world. And most of all, that unshakable joy in you and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.